Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Peter Spiegel. We have a great show lined up for you today. Later in the hour, we're going to be talking about ecotourism. Everyone loves ecotourism, right? Well, there's some new research, an interesting paper that speculates that maybe it's harming animals inadvertently. But first, our focus turns to California, where Governor Jerry Brown, not my favorite governor, has just signed an important piece of legislation into law, one that will positively affect the use of antibiotics in our food supply. So I want to welcome Jonathan Kaplan, Director of the Food and Agricultural Program at NRDC National Resources Defense Council. Hey, Jonathan. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, we're very happy you're here and especially uh, to speak about SB 27, just signed into law in California by the governor. Uh, SB 27, uh, authored by Senator Hill, is now the first state law that regulates livestock use of antibiotics and seeks put real limits on um, how and when antibiotics are used. And actually, it goes farther than existing federal regulations. The federal policy, FDA's effort, has a pretty big loophole. And Californians uh, stood up and passed the bill. And we're hopeful that it uh, gets the ball rolling for other similar measures around the country and uh, pushes industry and federal regulators uh, to, you know, take stronger action to curb overuse of these drugs. The big picture problem here is antibiotic resistance. Healthcare leaders here in the United States and around the world are finding that antibiotics are increasingly failing to kill the bacteria, the infections that they once worked effectively against. And that's a very scary situation. Um, You can't really practice modern medicine without antibiotics. You know, if if you get a strep throat and the antibiotics don't work, you're in for some serious consequences. And similarly, you can't do surgeries and chemotherapies, uh, cesarean births, lots of things, lots of medical practices that we take for granted suddenly become very scary without antibiotics. So why do we have this problem of antibiotic resistance? The answer is that we're using them too often, too frequently. We're overusing antibiotics. We humans are doing it, and livestock producers are doing it. Um, In animal agriculture, livestock producers often use antibiotics both to make the animals grow faster and to help them survive confinement. Right, you've got a lot of animals in a typical industrial livestock facility. You've got lots of animals crammed into a small space. They may be living in their own excrement. They're stressed. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're facing a lot of disease pressure. And one easy solution is just to give them a steady course of antibiotics. And that, of course, is the perfect formula for breeding antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Yep. If you were going to design a system to grow antibiotic-resistant superbugs, you would basically design a, an American feedlot. You know, you've got a lot of bacteria, you've got a lot of drugs, you're applying the drugs on a regular basis. It's, it's a perfect environment for breeding drug-resistant bacteria. And those bacteria can then escape from the feedlot, and they uh, can colonize the workers, they can go out in the manure, the air vents, they go out in the water, Uh, and they can travel on the meat itself all the way to the grocery store 
or even your kitchen table. And those bacteria carry genetic traits which allow them to resist the antibiotics and they can actually swap their DNA with other bacteria, effectively teaching other bacteria to resist those same antibiotics. So we're in a world where we're using these antibiotics uh, far too often and we're spreading antibiotic resistant bacteria that are contributing to the rising problem Mm -hmm. of antibiotic resistance. And just uh, to note, and I read this from some of your literature, the proportion of antibiotics useful to people that are actually used in agriculture is huge. That's right, yeah. Thanks for bringing that back in. So uh, we we need to curb antibiotic use in both human medicine and in animal agriculture, and it turns out 80% of all the antibiotics sold in the U.S. are sold for animal agriculture. So we're not going to solve this problem if we just focus on the human use. We need need to be working in both both sectors. Okay, so let's uh, turn to this new law. What what does it do? So the new law is um, not perfect, but it is now the strongest policy in the country Uh, seeking to rein in the use of these drugs. So what does it do? The law requires that any use of antibiotics in commercial animal production uh, get the the approval of a supervising veterinarian. Uh, It prohibits the use of antibiotics for making animals grow faster. And uh, perhaps most importantly, it prohibits using antibiotics for preventative purposes, uh, it, it, it prevents a regular pattern mm-hmm. of use of antibiotics for, for preventative purposes. So that means that a, a livestock producer can still use antibiotics if there's an elevated risk of disease, you know, if there's um, a breach in the biosecurity protocol, you know, let's say, a, you know, a, a disease outbreak is started, you know, the, in those kinds of scenarios, antibiotics can still be used, but the producer cannot simply administer the drugs day after day as a, you know, regular practice to compensate for healthier living conditions. So that, um, that's a big step forward. The federal Uh, policy implemented by the Food and Drug Administration, by contrast, only prohibits the use of antibiotics for making animals grow faster and effectively allows uh, livestock producers to use antibiotics for these so-called prevention purposes uh, without restriction. So the California law, um, I think, goes a long way toward closing that federal loophole. Now, a year ago when we spoke... We discussed the Purdue story and how they sort of voluntarily stepped up. And what has been the, the effect of that sort of leadership over the past year? Well, there have been a number of major food companies that have made public commitments to move away from antibiotics, uh, Purdue being one of them. We've also had several major um, food buying companies like McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, um, you know, they joined Panera and Chipotle uh, and, and other companies, uh, Costco now, you know, that have said, hey, we're, we're going to now buy uh, 
chicken and for some of them other meats as well that are raised without antibiotics. And that is really important development in this story. That really shows to everybody in the supply chain and to consumers that we can do this. Uh, and I think that really helped um, make the California law possible and I think will increasingly um, make it possible for stronger federal regulations in the future. But still, it, we, you'd like to see some other states start adopting these policies. California is a leader in so many of, of these sorts of things. Uh, what other states are looking at this? Well, uh, there is uh, legislation already introduced in Oregon. Uh, NRDC worked on legislation that was introduced in Maryland last year, and we'll be at it again in that state. Um, that bill was derailed, but I, you know, I'm hopeful that it will move forward in the next session. You know, the, the idea of regulation here is really critical. It's great that we've got some industry leaders that are voluntarily doing the right thing and making public claims about that. That's not going to be uh, sufficient at the end of the day because we need to bring the, the laggards in the industry uh, you know, up to that same standard. That's right. And it's the companies that are not volunteering that we're most worried about because they're probably the most intensive users of these drugs. So the, you know, the model companies are helpful, and they, they show that this can be done. Um, they give consumers choices in the marketplace, and that in turn fuels more consumer interest and demand for meat raised without antibiotics. But we absolutely have to have government regulation if we're going to really solve this problem. And regulation, which has more enforcement mechanisms built in. That's right. The, um, you know, the FDA policy is actually it's technically voluntary. There's no, there are no teeth to it. And it's basically a negotiated agreement that FDA has with the pharmaceutical industry to relabel their drugs to prohibit growth promotion uses of antibiotics. But we think that many of those same drugs can still be used uh, in the name of disease prevention. And as long as the label is changed to say disease prevention instead of growth promotion, the use is legal and can continue. So we don't think that's actually going to have a big effect at reducing overall use. Right. Um, the California bill, you know, is, is a lot better. Um, it's still, you know, we, we're not all the way out of the woods yet because the Department of Food and Agriculture in California now has to implement that bill, and that agency has a lot of discretion about how to interpret the law that was passed, and uh, we're going to have to work hard to make sure that the agency does a good job in implementing it. And I'm sure you will. Jonathan Kaplan from NRDC, thanks very much for the update and congratulations. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me on your show. You're listening to Animals Today. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com where you can listen to all the previous shows. And thanks for listening to our uh, discussion with Jonathan Kaplan. Animals Today is a animal advocacy show. That's our primary thing. Of course, we're also interested in antibiotics and making sure that we all have access to the highest quality antibiotics and preventing the development of resistance. Lori and I are both human physicians, by the way, and we use antibiotics regularly on our eye patients. So we have a double interest in this. And of course, as part of our mission, we promote a plant-based diet. So uh, we are in no way advocating or endorsing the meat industry or the chicken industry. We uh, want everyone to look at uh, becoming vegans. 
and eating uh, plants instead of animals. But until we all get to that point, we want to thank NRDC and all the co-sponsors and all the people who have worked hard toward uh, passing this uh, legislation in California. If you listen to Animals Today, stick around. More with the show after the break. back to the show. Last week was World Giraffe Day on June 21st, so let's talk a bit about the tallest living animal on Earth, the giraffe. Peter, when fully grown, the male giraffe can attain a height of almost what? Oh, 20 feet. As you know. Okay, I know my giraffes. Okay, 20 feet is, is right. Giraffes are classified as artiodactyla. Do you know what that means? No, no, no. Even-toed ungulates. Even-toed. Okay. Two toes? Four toes? Two toes. Yeah. Ungulate refers to any animal with hooves, right? A hoof being enlarged or modified toe or toenail. So, right. Two toes. And other animals like pigs, camels, deer, hippopotamuses, they all are even-toed ungulates. Like most artiodactylas, I think that's how you pronounce it, giraffes are sexually dimorphic which means the males are significantly bigger than females. There are nine giraffe subspecies. Peter, have you ever heard of the animal called okapi? No. I looked it up. It's a beautiful and interesting looking animal. It has a modest build and hind legs that are black and white stripes. Looks like a cross between a zebra and a deer. Anyway, some would say that the okapi best resembles the giraffe over any other animal on Earth, but I don't know. When I looked it up, I don't see any resemblance. Now that you describe it, I think I've seen him before. And like cows, giraffes are ruminant mammals. Ruminants have these specialized stomachs that pre-digest their food. They're constantly chewing their cud, a mass of semi-digested food ejected from their stomach and in need of further breakdown. Peter, picture a giraffe, okay? So you have these ears on the side of the head, Mm -hmm. and you have the two bump-like structures on top of their head. Yeah. What are these called? Mm, No idea. Okay, multiple choice. Let's see. Opsilopso, Mm. Nissan Maximus Bones, (laughs) Ossicones. Wow, Ossicones. They start out as stiff cartilage, which goes through an ossification process as the giraffe ages. And this turns the cartilage into bone and fuses into the giraffe's skull, which is about five inches long. And they are called Ossicones. Have you ever seen two giraffes with their necks slightly wound together and touching? yeah. Yeah. You know what that's called? No. Necking. That's cute. Actually, this behavior is among males and play a large role in determining dominance and mating rights. So the giraffe is a protected species throughout most of Africa, but like everything else, they face threats, including poaching and killing of giraffes continue in large numbers due to illegal hunting practices, which includes sport hunting, selling their coats, and even consuming their meat. Anyway, most giraffe species are currently endangered. According to the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, there was an estimated 140,000 giraffes in Africa in 1999, but the number has declined to less than 80,000 giraffes today. There you go. June 21st, World Draft Day. Love these guys. 
Peter, summer's upon us and Pet Plan Pet Insurance came out with 10 potentially hazardous summer hotspots for pets. Mm. So let's talk about some potentially avoidable medical emergencies. The first on their list is taking your dog to the beach. Wow, what can happen at the beach? Well, believe it or not, sand consumption can lead to problems like intestinal blockage. Mm. Does your dog just eat sand? You know, I could see it happening. Dogs eat sand, or if you're playing with a, a ball a ball and gets wet and yep. covered with sand, your dog slowly consumes that. Another hazard at the beach, potential hazard, salt water ingestion. That could be serious. Drinking too much salt water can lead to dehydration, disorientation, and seizures. Yeah. Then we have mountain vacations, or taking a hike with your dog. It's always a good idea to talk to your vet and find out what vaccinations you might need. For example, tick-borne diseases might be very prevalent in mountains. Yes, like uh, Lyme disease. Yeah. That's tick-borne. And I guess like every year we're learning that it's more and more common than previously thought. And there's a vaccine for yes. dogs, not for people though. Right, that exactly. Got, that got squashed. Relaxing with your dog at the lake. Well, Many dogs, when they see standing water, they just want to jump right in it. But many standing water sources harbor a host of intestinal parasites and bacteria that can cause illnesses like giardia, algae poisoning, and skin rashes, and infections like leptospirosis. Oh, yeah. We know about leptospirosis. Dr. Robert Reed did a nice segment about that and reminded us that it's uh, frequently overlooked. Yes. And according to this, what I'm reading here, the cost to treat a case of leptospirosis, I don't know if I believe this, but I guess it's the case, is $6,550. Gee. Wow. Hitting the pool with your pup. Well, just like you can be irritated by the chlorinated water, chlorine can irritate pets' sensitive eyes and skin. Also, Peter, there's something called dry drowning where pets unknowingly inhale water and then later develop life-threatening issues such as pulmonary edema. I know. So be careful about that. Next on the list is going on the road with your pet. Well, do I have to say this again? Never, ever leave your dog in the car, even for a minute. Temperatures in cars can climb very quickly, putting your pet in serious jeopardy. I guess people like taking their dogs to backyard bashes and cookouts. Well, what can go wrong there? <laughs> kid pulls dog's tail, dog, dog bites kid. And lawsuit ensues. <laughs> exactly. Barbecue burns is listed as a very common occurrence wow. in backyard bashes. Your dog consuming things he shouldn't consume. Like for one, charcoal briquettes. You know what that is? It's a compressed block of coal dust or other combustible materials. Yeah. Dog might eat that. Yeah. Has chicken flavoring on it or whatever. (laughs) Oh, I see. After it's like cooled. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You know, I could see a dog like breaking into, tearing into like a plastic garbage container filled with scraps. Oh, you bet. That's what I see as the risk. And maybe getting into someone's drink or alcohol or something like that. Right. And speaking about foods that could be toxic or poisonous for your animal, onion, garlic, chives, right? Right. Raw, undercooked meats and eggs that can cause food poisoning from salmonella and E. coli and fat trimmings from bones. Yeah. Not to mention the bones. Exactly. Dogs like chewing on the bones that can splinter. You can, they can obstruct. Yep. And avocados. People, avocados? I didn't know about that. And grapes and raisins. Well, you grapes knew that, and right? everyone knows about yeah. that. Yeah. And then, of course, we all know about chocolates and xylitol. Anyway, 
Next potential summertime hazard is taking your dog to the dog park. Wow, Peter, didn't we do like a whole two segments on hazards at dog parks, hidden hazards? I know, one of our favorite topics. Yes. They look so inviting, you know, and so idyllic, and there's dangers. Dozens of dangers you need to be aware of at dog parks. So animalstodayradio.com and go to the archive page and just check it out. Type in the search box, dog Dog parks. Right. Next on the list, campfires. Okay, campfire sparks and flames. Right. Be risky. Fur and fire, never a good mixture. Fur and fire. Oh, that's good. That needs a product. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. want to welcome Professor Daniel Blumstein. He is Professor and Chair of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UCLA. And the paper he and his colleagues just published is titled, How Nature-Based Tourism Might Increase Prey Vulnerability to Predators. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Dan, ecotourism and nature-based tourism is a very fast-growing segment of the travel industry. And overall, you know, I'd say people view this as a positive. You're not ruining the environment. You're not killing the animals. And yet you and your colleagues wonder whether a different type of harm may result. Please explain. Well, I think ecotourism has the best intentions. Much of nature-based tourism isn't ecotourism. People go to natural areas. Eight billion people a year are estimated to go to protected areas every year. Um, that's a lot of people. That's more than everyone, every single person on Earth and then some. And we know that developing areas for nature-based tourism cause ecological changes. Roads are built. When roads go in areas, there's, you know, roadkill, there's dust, there's destruction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've known about these things before. What, what we do is we develop a new way of thinking about how animals might respond to tourists. And we do so by tying it into what we know about animal domestication, where animals are tamed, which is within generational change in behavior, where they become um, mellower, where they uh, become relaxed around people. Yep. And then also with domestication, we select animals, artificially select them to be more uh, for traits that are, that are desirable. And when we know from selection experiments that all sorts of traits are packaged together. And then we said, okay, well, where else is this sort of happening? This is happening also in urbanization. As we build cities, as more people move into places, um, people come in contact with wildlife. And we know that in urbanization sorts of scenarios, um, some animals may tolerate us, others may not. 
And those that do become more accustomed to us. We can get closer to them. Um, and we're now finding, many people are finding, that there's evolutionary change in these domesticated populations as well. And we say that one of the key factors with ecotourism or nature-based tourism and domestication and and um, urbanization is that sometimes when people go to areas, we scare away predators. We create what's called a human shield. And this makes animals feel safer. Sometimes it may attract more animals to areas. And animals become relaxed, they become less vigilant. And maybe if we are selecting, as we do with um, these other sorts of scenarios, for particular sorts of animals, these animals may become more vulnerable to predation when, predator, when they encounter predators. So and they, yes. Go ahead. So uh, how, does, how does that work? Why would an animal become a more susceptible, perhaps, to predation after you're gone? So it really, and, and what we're setting this up as, this, the journal we published in is called Trends in Ecology and Evolution, and it's uh, a review and sort of preview type journal where papers try to sort of set out questions that people should be thinking about and asking. And we're saying, we know that there's enough pieces of the puzzle here that all work together. We need to understand the conditions under which this might happen and the extent of what, what makes this happen. Now, I know from some of my own work that actually animals around people are still able to respond to predators and still able to recognize predators. But it does seem that um, there are some cases of other species that become less able to discriminate predators. There's one study of, of fox squirrels that suggests that, that in urban areas they have lost their ability to respond to the smell of predators, which is really interesting if it's true. And it's really interesting if, it's more, if, this, if this happens more extensively. We also know that um, immediately these human shields I'm talking about, people making animals feel safer because we exclude predators, have all sorts of immediate ecological effects. Um, we can see in places where animals are coming, uh, prey animals are coming because it's safe. We can see them eating selected foods more than they normally would, and you know the plants take a hit. But there's all sorts of other ecological dynamics at play here as well. So if this is happening, and we can't say how extensive this is, but we can say here are all the pieces of the puzzle, and it seems to be likely, then we should be worried about um, our potential inadvertent taming of animals that occurs with certain forms of ecotourism. We know that people go out and specifically try to habituate animals to make it easier for ecotourists to see them. We know this has been very successfully done with great apes in East and Central Africa. And we also know that those very individuals that are habituated to tourists are then more vulnerable to wildlife poachers. And if that is happening with um, non-human predators as well, which it may be in certain circumstances, um, we have problems. Much ecotourism really is ecotourism in quotes. When people are going out and feeding animals in the wild, I don't think that's the best thing for them. And my co-authors and I don't think that's the best thing for them. And that tames them excessively and brings them in to us. And if they live their whole lives there, if this is a very intensive thing, if there are lots of people around, then, then maybe we are systematically scaring away the predators. And, and maybe over gener within generations, but also across generations, we might be causing um, changes. One of the points you make, which you are just alluding to there, is that we really don't know the unintended consequences of this huge experiment. I agree. And I'm an ecotourist. Um, I think um, that it's important to go out and see and interact with nature. I think that I and many others go to developing countries where 
um, really there might not be other alternatives other than consuming nature than other than than, than coming up with um, a, a, an income stream for pres- preserving it and protecting it. And, you know, one shouldn't say all ecotourism is bad, but we need to better understand, and hopefully in the next five to ten years this paper will stimulate more research to, to look at the scope and, and breadth of this, and we'll know more. And then we can begin thinking about things that might not be so good and things that might be fixable. Um, but it's always a cost-benefit analysis. So if, even though the um, uh, apes and, and, and uh, gorillas and, and chimpanzees might be habituated in East and, East and Central Africa, um, the, that, that's been influential and, and, and really, really, really important in preserving the habitat and preserving those species. Right. So even if there is some heightened risk for these animals, the overall cost-benefit scenario might be greater than, you know, the benefits may outweigh the costs. Now, maybe that's different in Yellowstone, right. where we know that moose and other ungulates are hanging out by roads where people are because they're avoiding wolves. And they're foraging more on the vegetation in this area. They're getting hit by cars in some cases. They're having their fawns um, in these or calves in these areas. So, you know, maybe maybe we'll want to zone places for high-intensity ecotourism. Maybe we want to minimize the extent of it. Maybe we need to think about the temporal nature of this ecotourism. Lots of future questions to be asked. And I think that ecotourists, the ones who really truly care about the nature and biodiversity and animals, ultimately are going to be those most interested in figuring this out and self-regulating themselves um, when good predictions can be made. The people who are leading the tours or uh, providing the businesses that the ecotourists uh, patronize, they may not have the best intentions or the best knowledge in this, in this area. They may or they may not. And, I mean, there are ecotourism associations, and some of these are just tourist associations yeah. with another you know, label. Um, some care about outcomes. Some, many places are very well regulated. The Galapagos, I'm sure, are very different now with the amount of ecotourism they have than than, than, say, 50 years ago. But um, the Galapagos also are are very well regulated in terms of how many visitors can go places and um, what they can do and their their code of conduct. Um, Antarctica, a lot of interest in ecotourism there, some regulation. Um, You know, I I think some people are, you know, concerned about uh, habituating penguins and other uh, stressful encounters with humans that penguins and other animals may have. A few years ago, Lori and I were... Uh, vacationing down in New Zealand, and we did not participate, but we observed a uh, a tour boat. It was uh, they they were swimming with the dolphins. The dolphins were in in the bay, so they they were. I guess they started out as wild, but you would go and they. I guess they were feeding them or attracting them somehow, and we just knew this this wasn't right, and we were n- not at all interested in that. Uh, we you don't really know what that does. Well, um, we don't. Um, and there's more invasive you know, ways of doing that, and there may be less invasive ways. Certainly there's this tension between you know, whale watching and marine mammal watching boats that are supposed to stay, in the U.S. at least, a certain number of yards or meters away. Whether they do or don't is another thing. But um, you know, we, we, we are maybe loving our animals to death. Maybe it's not stressful, and we need to know whether it is. Just because an animal's hanging out with you doesn't mean it's not stress, stressed and experiencing... Um, a heightened stress response, increasing its physiological burden, et cetera. Um, really, decisions about where to hang out and where to stay and how to interact are traded off with other costs and benefits. So 
What we're suggesting in our review is that an un, un, un or underappreciated potential cost is the risk of predation, enhanced risk of predation. People have thought about physiological costs before. Now, that's interesting because do I think that ecotourism is going to lead to large or is leading to large scale um, predator mortality of, of species that people watch? Probably not. But many of the wildlife and biodiversity problems we face today are really a death by a thousand cuts. We've got climate change, um, stressing out animals and plants, moving them to different locations, making it better or worse for them in certain areas. We've got habitat destruction leading to fragmentation of habitats and subdivision of populations. And when we get smaller and smaller populations, they become more and more vulnerable. And it doesn't really take that many extra road kills or predation events to take a population that is on a sustainable trajectory or growing population trajectory to put it onto a negative population trajectory. So many of the species that people watch are endangered and threatened. Is this an issue for them? Um, we don't know. No one's really been asking the question this way. So we hope to stimulate research to better understand um, how important this is compared to other things and recognizing that really this is trying to manage a death by a thousand cuts. Um, Maybe there's something we can do about it. Maybe not. Maybe it's not a huge problem. But um, we've, I think, articulated a plausible series of events and scenarios by which this is likely to be an issue. And it's certainly, um, with so many people loving nature and wanting to go out into nature and interact with animals and, and, and preserve biodiversity or experience biodiversity, um, there's a huge opportunity for both cost and benefit. Professor Dan Blumstein, thanks very much for sharing this uh, paper with us and your thoughts and joining us here on Animals Today. Thanks for having me. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio. Today's Animals Today fun facts are about penguins. Specifically, the world's biggest penguin, or at least the fossilized remains of it, were recently discovered in Antarctica. 37 million years ago, a giant penguin, almost 7 feet tall, inhabited the rocky shores and the seas. Scientists believe this huge aquatic bird would have been able to stay underwater 40 minutes or longer, allowing it to hunt deep-sea fish. The second largest penguin ever discovered was merely 5 feet tall. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. show. You know, we used to have a bug guy come by the house each month to spray the perimeter of the house because we're getting a lot of ants inside. And we always wondered whether this was safe for the dogs and when we could let them go out again. And what if they stepped in the sprayed area? Would they then lick their paws and get sick? You know, I'm still not really sure what risks pesticides and weed killers pose to dogs and cats, but I know who does. Robert Reed, Medical Director, VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Dr. Reed, I have so many questions about this. Let's start with insecticides, especially the ones professionally sprayed. What are they and what precautions do I need to take with my companion animals around the house? Well, first off, you know, I could give you some suggestions of things to do to protect your household and your pets in your household. Um, but I think it's important anytime you ask someone to apply a pesticide around your home to know what they're going to use. 
there are so many different agents out there that are used for pesticides as pesticides, um, and they have different levels of risk, and the exposure risk is different, and the way the cats or dogs might respond to them is different. So I think it's realistic to to expect that you know what agents are being used and and what level of safety they have. And those questions about how long can your cat or dog be exposed to them, how long are they going to be in the environment, where are they going to go in the environment, yeah. um, is the residue that's left behind going to be toxic? Those are all legitimate questions um, that you should ask, and you should think about what your goal is for pesticide treatment so that if you're treating for ants, you, you just treat for ants. If you're just treating your trees, you just treat your trees. You know, you limit the exposure to the environment and to the and limit the areas that your pet can come into contact with it. Specifically, if you know if you're having someone come over to your house uh, to to treat the area for pet for pests, then you, you of course want to remove the pets from the area. All of their toys, beds, I mean, chew bones, food bowls, all of those should be removed. Um, always remember to cover any, cover any aquaria that fish might be in so that any vapors or residues don't end up in the water there. Um, I would make sure uh, that you uh, that you know how long they have to be off of the area. Obviously, as you, as you mentioned, you want to keep the uh, pets away from any areas until it's completely dried. Um, but you also want to know how long, even after that, you might be able, they might be able to have contact. You know, treating a lawn, for instance, with a herbicide or the pesticide may have uh, a longer duration of risk than treating the tile in your kitchen, for instance, because of the different products that are used, different rates of degradation. You know, if you know what product is being used, you can know whether sunlight or whether water has an effect on the degradation. So you, you should ask those, and I think you're, you should expect your, your pest control provider to be able to provide that information. Yeah, um, you, go ahead. There's another thing that I think you want to keep track of. If you're applying a spray, then you have one potential impact. But if you're using a pesticide that's provided in a bait or something that the pest is intended to eat, then the level of risk to your pets is completely different. And in fact, toxicities are probably much more likely in cases where you know where herbicides are more likely insecticides or rodenticides or snail baits are provided in forms that animals eat, meaning that your dog or cat might be tempted to eat them as well. Now, do dogs and cats like to lick these products, or is it just incidental contact that's really the concern here? I think that, again, depends on which agent you're using, and it depends on where it's being applied. Uh, I think that there aren't very many dogs or cats that would lick a surface after it's been sprayed, but there are a few, and you need to know your dog and yeah. need to make sure that if they're intended to do that, yeah. they don't, just because that's an, an increase in exposure that you can avoid. Um, but once it's dried, the, the chance that the residue impacting them, in other words, getting on their feet and, and licking them and infect, affecting them to a level that's toxic is extremely small. Uh, I think that when it's wet, there's a greater chance of absorption of the toxin, which may have a higher likelihood of reaching a level of toxicity. But once it's applied and dried, there's very little risk of exposure, with the exception of, of anything that's applied to the lawn that may have a long 
degradation process where pets may be rolling around in the grass and having extended exposures over a long period of time that might increase their level of risk. And what are the signs of toxicity? Depends on the toxin involved. You know, if you're talking about an organophosphate, which is more likely something that's used as a spray or a pyrethrin, it, it could be neurologic. It could be gastrointestinal, meaning, you know, drooling or vomiting or diarrhea. It depends largely on what's being used, and that's another good reason um, to ask what's being used so you know what to expect. But some of these toxins that are used as rotenticides actually cause internal bleeding. Some of them cause swelling in the brain, and this is of both the intended victim and an unintended victim, like a dog or a cat. Uh, and uh, the the most common side effect of something like snail bait is probably seizures. Wow. And what's the treatment for toxicity? It is, again, on what you're using. Um, it's really important if your pet is exposed to a toxin that you know what it is because we have available um, experts through the uh, Animal Poison Control Center that can help us come up with the best way to treat uh, any exposure if we know what it is. So if there's any way that you can provide a veterinarian or poison control specialist with the exact compound, it will go a long way to helping in the success of the treatment. Very good. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you. You're welcome. So obviously, if one suspects their pet has ingested or becomes ill from pesticides, call your veterinarian right away. There is a National Pesticide Information Center, which Dr. Reed was telling me about, that people can call if they have questions related to pesticide use around their home and around their pets. That number is 800-858-7378. 800-858-7378. That's the National Pesticide Information Center. Thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website, again, is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org.